We are in Hebrews 11 today. Hebrews 11, verses 13 through 16. Hebrews 11, one of the most famous chapters in the Bible, certainly the most well-known in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews written to Jewish Christians who were feeling discouraged, pressured by friends and family and neighbors for departing from the traditions of old in favor of a crucified Messiah. And what they didn't know was the the traditions of old were soon to pass away. The temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed within less than uh, seven years. There would be no more sacrifices. There hasn't been a temple, a sacrifice, or a priest on the temple mount in Jerusalem since that day. So the, the point of this whole sermon series is the way to live is not to cling to the things that are passing away, but to reach for the things that last forever. Even things that you and I can't currently see. That's why this is a story, this chapter is about living by faith. And a huge part of living by faith is looking ahead. It's what we call hope. Now, the way we use the word hope as modern day people is different than the way scriptural writers use the term hope. We say things like this. You've probably said this, in fact. I hope this summer's not as hot as usual. And you know good and well that's probably not going to take place. You're probably going to sweat just as much and swat just as many mosquitoes as you have every other summer, but it sure would be nice. That's what we mean when we say hope. What the Bible means when it says hope is, here's what I know. Here's what I know is coming. I have no doubt this is coming because God is faithful and He has promised us and He will not go back on His promises. So even though I don't have my hands on it yet, even though my eyes can't see it yet, I know it's out there and that's what I'm looking forward to. Now let me give you an example, a very, very personal example from my own life. Some of you remember a couple weeks ago, Mother's Day, I wrote a blog post about my mom and I talked about how My mom, for the first 19 years of my life, was if I had to choose one person who was the most influential person in my life, it would have been her. She's the one who led me to Christ more than any other person. She's the one who discipled me uh, through those early years of my life and my teenage years. She was my confidant. She was my counselor. She knew more about me than anybody and guided me in so many ways. And even after that, once I met Carrie, and Carrie became definitely the most important and influential person in my life, even then, my mom was still very much a part of my life and and was was a great mother-in-law and a great grandmother when our kids came along. Uh, My mom is still very much alive and in very, very good physical health, but she has dementia and has for uh, quite a few years. And, And in the years that I've been here at this church, the last seven years, we've seen her decline quite a bit. And many of you know, Maybe even all of you, because these days, I think just about all of us have some important person in our life that's been struck with this. You know that this is a different kind of grief. I'm not saying it's worse than having a loved one who died suddenly, or even someone who just died after an illness of a few months. Those have their own grief, but this is a slow grief. This is a grief that lasts for years. This is every time you see her, you realize something's different and not different good. And so that's what our family's dealing with. My dad is caring for my mom all by herself, all by himself. And so that's another source of of, uh, anxiety for us is we want my dad to be okay because that's very, very stressful, the work that he is doing caring for my mom, his his wife. We also have the knowledge that her dad, my grandpa, uh, who also was a big influence in my life early on, he died of the same thing. 
Um, so she was his primary caregiver. And so we've seen the path that took. Uh, and then I think to myself, well, that's two generations in a row. I don't know if this is genetic. Nobody does. They're still working on that. So what if 10, 20 years from now, that's me? What if my family, what if Carrie and my kids are having to deal with that and make decisions about that? And I don't want that for them. And there's a part of me, the vanity in me, that doesn't want that to be anybody's last memory of me, as silly as that sounds. But all of those things together could crush me, could absolutely sap any joy from my life, could make me depressed, discouraged, despairing, and terrified, if not for one thing. And that's the hope that I have in Christ. The hope that I have in Christ, listen to me, is not that I'm going to die and be a spirit in some better place. The hope that I have in Christ is not that I'm going to be raptured from this world and watch everything burn to death while I'm safe and sound. The hope that I have in Christ is the hope that is in the Scriptures, which is that my body will be resurrected, that I will live in a new earth where Jesus is King. And so will you if you are in Christ. That is our hope. And there's no other religion, there's no other philosophy that offers anything like that. We know. We know what's good about this world, right? This is what's so great about Christian hope. We know what's good about this world. We know what's bad. And so we can easily imagine what it would be like if all the bad were gone, if everything sad were suddenly untrue. We know what that would be like. We can imagine it with our minds. We know what it would be like if suddenly these infirmities we deal with physically and mentally were gone and we were the way we want to be. We know that. And so we know that will be ours. Now, I think it's going to be even better than we imagine and dream, but that's Christian hope. And that means that I know that someday, and I hope it's soon, I'll see my mom and my grandma and they will be my grandpa and they will be very much themselves, in fact, better than themselves, because they will no longer have a sin nature that we have today. And the same will be true of me. And that's why nothing can get me down because of that hope. And I hope you have that hope too. Now, here's what the next stage is in our chapter on faith. And, and listen to what it says, because what I just told you about has a lot to do with what we're going to talk about today. Verse 13 of Hebrews 11 says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. That's talking about hope. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. And we talked about last week, that city is the new Jerusalem, the people of God who will inhabit the new earth, resurrected bodies, perfect, imperishable, glorious powerful. What he's doing here is he's summing up what he's been talking about since verse 1. He's been walking through the scriptures and saying, okay, here's an example of someone who lived by faith. Here's an example of someone who looked ahead instead of living for this world. Here's someone who lived the life God wants us to live, and this is what it looked like in that person's life. And now he's summing it all up. And the way he sums it up is they, they saw what was ahead. They looked ahead. They, they greeted what was afar, 
they didn't focus on this life. They didn't focus on making their home down here. Therefore, not only is that a consolation prize, because what I said at the beginning makes it sound like the, the hope of God is that it's okay that I die because something better is coming. And that's true. But that's not all that Christian hope does. It doesn't just make death and infirmity tolerable. It actually changes the way we live right now. And that's true whether you're 90 or 9. It's true no matter how old you are, Christian hope should change the way you live. How? In a way you probably don't expect. He says, people who live this way, he's talking about Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, and Sarah, the people he's already mentioned, and the people he will mention in, in the next few passages that we'll read the next three weeks. He says, they lived as strangers and exiles. They were strangers and exiles on this earth. They were intentionally, successfully homeless down here. Now, we know what that's like because we're Americans. You know, in a month, we're going to celebrate the birthday of our nation. And there are a lot of things about America that are unique. And one of the things about America that's unique is it's a nation of immigrants. So unless you're 100% Native American, I don't know anybody who fits that category, you are who you are because... Somewhere down the line, your ancestors came here from somewhere else. And they probably had the same experience most other people came when they got here, or did when they came here, and that is they didn't fit in at first. People made fun of them because they talked funny, because their food smelled weird, because their music didn't sound the way our music sounded, because they dressed in a way that set them apart. They were oddballs. They were strangers and exiles, and they were told, hey, either fit in with us or go back home. Fit in or get out. That's the way immigrants typically get treated, and that's what happened to your ancestors and mine, most likely. Could be even worse. Maybe, maybe your ancestors couldn't get a job because no one would hire. They may have put up signs that said, do not hire people of this, from this country, or do not, realtors, don't let them buy homes in this town, in this neighborhood, or maybe even they were enslaved. But you know what happened over time? Our ancestors fit in. They managed to find a way to become American. That's the greatness. That's one of the things that's great about our country is we're this melting pot of different peoples who've said, okay, we're going to be something different. And we've done it so successfully that most of us, when we want to know where we're really from, we have to pay some other company $100 to take a DNA test to find out. I did this a few years ago. I always assumed that I was German in heritage because of my last name. I took a DNA test and they told me, no, actually, you're two-thirds English. Who knew? That's what it means to fit in, to, to just melt into a new identity. Now, as Christians, we are immigrants here. That's not just a metaphor. That's what Philippians 3.21 says. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not from here. And our hope is not here. Our hope is not that we will succeed according to the American dream. Our hope is in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is coming from heaven to earth to be king and where he will rule over us. That's our hope. We're strangers and aliens here. And the difference in this is, yes, the world says to us, just like immigrants in the material world, fit in or get out. The difference is, in order to succeed, we cannot fit in. 
We can't conform. We can't become like this world in the ways that are important. We can't embrace their values. We can't uh, look for success on their terms. We have to remain loyal to the place we're from and the place we're going back to someday. So there's a song we used to sing that was all about this. And I'm going to start singing it. They're going to post it on the, on, the board, on the screen, but y'all sing it along with me. It goes like this. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasure is laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door. And I can't feel at home in this world anymore. That's what I'm talking about. And, and, you know, you might say, well, I wish we still sang that song. And I, yeah, maybe. That's not my point. I mean, new songs are being written all the time. We can't sing every song that's ever been written. What I think is a problem is we don't actually even think that way anymore. You know, we used to, as Christians, admire missionaries, martyrs, people who laid down their lives for the cause. Who do we admire now? People who have big Instagram followings, preachers who build megachurches, politicians who may be nothing like Jesus, but hey, they make sure and get their picture taken on the way into church once or twice a year. These are the people we look up to. These are the people we, in essence, worship because we do whatever they say, because we esteem them, we give our identities to them. The world says fit in or get out, and we say, okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll fit in, I'll I'll embrace this world's values. In the time of of Jesus, the people in charge were the Romans. They had the power. They had the wealth. They controlled everything. And there were people in uh, Jesus' people group, uh, the Jews, who said, hey, if we're going to succeed in this world, we have to get in good with the Romans. Some of them became tax collectors and worked for the Romans. Others others just uh, schmoozed them, you and I would say. We, we, they, they schmoozed the Romans. They, they courted their favor in various ways. And that's the way a lot of us Christians are. We court the world's favor in order to get ahead. Either right or left, we're courting one side or the other because we want power, because we want to feel safe. So I, I kind of rewrote that verse to, to make it look like what it really would be if we sang it accurately today without hypocrisy. I'm not going to sing this. But if we really wanted to sincerely sing this song, it would go like this. I've made this world my home. I'm comfy right smack here. My treasure's in this world so I can keep it near. The good life beckons me with all that can be mine. If Jesus wants my heart, he'll have to get in line. And that's the way we live. We have no idea how to live as exiles and strangers because we almost never see it done. So we have to look to these people in Hebrews 11. And what do they teach us about how to live as an exile and stranger, intentionally, successfully homeless in this world? Three things. i got to go fast. Number one, they keep score differently. Their version of success is not this world's version of success. Look at Abraham. Abraham and Sarah were the last two we looked at last week. Abraham actually described himself as an alien and a stranger in a strange land. Remember, we saw how he was a wealthy man in another country, and God said, go to the country I show you. Didn't give him any promises about what he'd find there. All he knew is he had to leave a place where he was comfortable and successful 
and spend the rest of his life living in a tent. That's intentional homelessness. He never owned a piece of property in the promised land until the day Sarah died, and they only sold him that little plot of land so he could bury her. He did this because he was looking for another city, a better city. There's a story we didn't talk about last week, and that, that describes a, a moment when there was a war in the promised land. There were, there were five kings in that land that fought against four other kings, and the four kings defeated the five. And in the midst of that battle, Abraham's nephew Lot was taken captive. And Abraham said, well, I'm going to rescue Lot. Abraham was just one man, but he had 318 trained men who worked for him. So Abraham, this private individual, did what five kings could not. He invaded and defeated the four victorious kings and rescued his nephew. Now in that time, if you won a battle, then you got to keep the spoils of war. You got to keep the gold and the possessions and the clothing and the, and the animals. You got to keep the people you'd captured in war as your slaves. You got to take the land that you had conquered and you became king of that land. So Abraham could have become king. He could have gone from being homeless to being king of a whole nation of his own. And in fact, the king of Sodom, yes, that Sodom, who was one of the five kings who got defeated in the earlier battle, came out to Abraham and said, oh, hey, Abraham, good job. Can you just give me back my people and then you can have the rest? And Abraham said, no, no, I'm not going to take any of this stuff. I'm going to take my nephew, that's all. I'm not going not to be able to... You pagans are not going to be able to say, we made Abraham rich. I'm going to trust in God to provide for me. That's what I mean by he didn't keep score in the world's way. Now, that doesn't mean that you and I can never accept any promotions or blessings or accomplishments. There are times in Scripture when God raises up people to prominence, like Joseph, like Esther, like Daniel. They go from nobody to, to a big name in the community. That's not going to happen to most of us but it happens to some of us. And here's the thing. Those people, their greatness was not because of their earthly accomplishments. Can you name any other queens of Persia besides Esther, for instance? Can you name any other prime ministers of Egypt other than Joseph? No. What made them great was not the fact that they achieved this great thing. What made them great was that having achieved something, they continued to serve God and Him alone. Their citizenship was in heaven. They weren't truly servants of Persia or Egypt. They were servants of God in Persia, in Egypt. That's what it means to live a life of greatness. What is your goal? Is your goal to be one of the Romans in this world, right? To, to have the power, to have the wealth, to have the status. You can probably make it if that's your goal. But you won't live a full life. When you stand before God, I promise you this, when you stand in judgment. You will not care one bit what the cool kids in school thought of you or how big your house was or how big your bottom line was or what school you got degrees from or what titles you achieved. All that will matter on that day is, did I serve God and did I love people? Did I, did I invest myself in my relationship with God and did I invest in others? That's all that will matter on that day because God and people are the only things that last forever. C.S. Lewis said it this way, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. That's what I'm talking about. That's keeping score differently. Second 
thing we learn from these people in Hebrews 11 about how to live as strangers and aliens in this world, they expect to be misunderstood. Now, I don't like this point. I'd love to skip this point, but it's true. I wish this wasn't true, but it is. We know this. We know that immigrants, wherever they are, not just in America, every country where there's immigration, immigrants initially get mistreated because our sin nature just doesn't like things that are different. We want people to adapt to us. We don't want us to have to adapt to them. And it annoys us when people come over and they have these different customs and, and, and ways, and that just make, that means we have to adjust, and we don't like it. Jesus was the ultimate immigrant because he was from a very different world and he did not adapt in any way to the ways of this world. But ironically, it wasn't the sinners that hated him. It wasn't the outcasts. It wasn't the, the pagans. It was the highly religious folks. This is what always ought to give you and me great pause as highly religious distinctively moral people, that it was people just like you and me who hated Jesus the most. He was an immigrant here, and we hated the fact that he showed us what real righteousness looks like. And it made our righteousness look petty and legalistic by comparison, because that's what it was. And that's why we wanted him dead. Jesus talked about this right before he died in his last words to his disciples in John 15. He said, if this world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And then Paul writes to, second, writes to Timothy in the letter of 2 Timothy 3.12 and says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now raise your hand if that's one of the promises of the Bible that you have on a coffee mug or in calligraphy on your wall or on a bumper sticker. No, I didn't think so. And yet that is a promise. It's not unusual to be hated for your faith in Christ. It is expected. And then a little lesser known passage in Hebrews 13. I need to give a little background to this. The, the Jews, on the command of God, celebrated a day every year called the Day of Atonement. Today they call it Yom Kippur. Day of Atonement back then, when there was a temple or a tabernacle, was you fasted all day, and then you gathered around the temple or the tabernacle, you washed as the high priest went into the Holy of Holies. The one time a year he did so where he offered up a sacrifice for the sins of the whole community. And then he came out and he took a goat and he placed his hands on the goat's head, symbolically placing the sins of the people on the goat. And then the people would yell and scream and chase and drive that goat out into the wilderness and get it as far away from them as possible where it would wander in the wilderness until it died. And so Hebrews 13 says that Jesus became our scapegoat. Because on Good Friday, Jesus was driven out of the city of Jerusalem, out of the gates of Jerusalem, bearing that cross as people yelled and screamed and threw rocks and spit and kicked and hit and drove him out outside the camp of the city where he died for our sins. And so verse 13 of chapter 13 says, Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. 
For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. We often believe that Jesus died and suffered so we wouldn't have to. And in terms of our guilt and shame, that is absolutely true. We forget, though, that the New Testament says over and over again that to be a disciple means you don't run from the shame and and the pain and the outcast uh, nature of following Jesus. You embrace that. We go to him outside the camp. We bear his reproach gladly because we're looking for a better city. This world is not our home. We're just passing through. Now, let me just give one quick clarification. I do know some Christians who wear their offensiveness as a badge of honor, who are proud of the fact that non-Christians hate them. That's not what Jesus was talking about. We're commanded to be fools for Christ. We're never commanded to be bullies for Jesus. I'll put it a different way. If people hate you because of Jesus, because you are so faithful to live out the gospel, then you are doing right, even though it's hard. But if people hate Jesus because of you, you need to repent. If people hate you because of Jesus, that's good. But if people hate Jesus because of you, you need to repent. It's as simple as that. Number three. The third thing about exiles and strangers in this world is they love the place where they live because they represent the place where they're from. That's kind of a mouthful, so let me explain what I mean. Jeremiah the prophet lived in probably the worst possible time. He lived in Jerusalem knowing that soon it was going to be destroyed by the Babylonians and everybody's going to be carried away into exile. And he had to preach to his people every day, they're coming, they're going to destroy us, and it's our fault. That's not a message any preacher wants to preach, but that was his one message. And at one point, several thousand Israelites got carried off into exile, and they were in Babylon. And Jeremiah wrote them a letter from Jerusalem where he still was, because he knew that some of the false prophets up there were saying, don't even unpack your bags, don't make a home here, because because we're all going home. I mean, God's going to defeat these Babylonians, and we're going back to Jerusalem. So Jeremiah writes a letter to correct that. In Jeremiah 29, he writes, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. He's saying, you're going to live there a long time, 70 years, actually. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. He's saying, I know you hate these Babylonians because they've taken you away because their, their ways are so different and wrong. You want to be a thorn in their side. You want to be a rock in their shoe. You want to make them sad they ever did anything to you, but instead be a blessing to them. Every Babylonian ought to wake up every day and say, thank God for those Jews. Boy, they've made this a better city to live in. That's what we should be. Remember, God's promise to Abraham was, through you all peoples of the earth will be blessed. God's calling on the people of of Israel was, you're going to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. You're going to be be, uh, my people wherever you are, taking my word with you, my light with you. 
And that's our calling too. You know, America is a great country. It's the best country, I think, to live in on this earth. I think it's the best country that's ever existed. That means we have the best Babylon of all. But it's still Babylon. We're still living in Babylon, y'all. America is not the promised land. Our home is somewhere that we haven't been yet. And we're going there. But for now, we're not like the Romans, striving for power, striving for status. But we're also not like another group that was in Jesus' time. There was a group called the Essenes. You probably haven't heard of them. You've heard of Sadducees and Pharisees and Herodians and Zealots. But the Essenes, you've sort of indirectly heard of them if you've ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Those were copied by this group called the Essenes. They were Jews who said, society's corrupt, everything's gone off the rails, so let's get away. Let's, let's form our own little bubble over here out in the wilderness where we'll copy the scriptures, where we'll have our own rules, where we live untainted by the world. Jesus wasn't among them. Jesus said, no, no, live in the city. Live with the people. Be a part of their world. Show them the light of the gospel. Jesus loved the place where he lived, even though that place often hated him back. Jesus went where the people were, even though some of them wanted to kill him, including people from his own hometown. Can you imagine? It wasn't a comfortable life. Sometimes he told uh, one man who wanted to join his team, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but I don't have a place to lay my head. He was the most successfully homeless person who ever lived because he didn't want anything this world had to offer except us. He just wanted our salvation. That's all. That's all this world could give him. And he had to pay for that with his life. He gave up everything he had so that we who had nothing could gain everything. So who are you more like? Are you hoping to be like the Romans who ruled this world? Are you trying to be like the Essenes who ran away from this world? Are you hoping to be like Jesus who lived as an exile and a stranger down here, never bought into this world's ways, but gave his life to rescue it? That's the choice. Which life do you want to live? Today can be the day when the trajectory of your life changes, where you can say, I'm, I'm tired of striving for the world's approval, or I'm tired of trying to get away from the world and treat them like an enemy. I want to live like Jesus did.